This podcast is presented to you by Pastors Tom and Bonnie DeShal from Celebration Church in Harare, Zimbabwe. For more information, please visit celebrationmen.org. Today I want to pick up where I left off yesterday. My challenge has been to try to bring some understanding of prayer and intercession. My focus really has been more on intercession of which prayer and praying is a part. And to help us to transition from an overwhelming consciousness of our own personal needs and crises, struggles and pains and interests, self-interests, and to get into the context of the mind of God himself, the heart of God. So that what we lost in the Garden of Eden because of sin and disobedience and because we have been literally kicked out of the garden, and the garden is protected from us. We must now discover what is God's strategic plan because of his love for us and because of the world that he has created and which he still has a plan for, we must now discover what is the strategy of God for him still to engage us in the original plan to become fruitful and to multiply and to replenish the earth and to subdue it and to rule over it and to ensure that the glory of the presence and of the knowledge of God covers his entire real estate, which we may call the world or the earth, in which we live. There is a there is a plan and a design that God has constructed. Sometimes we call it a channel that bridges the gap between where God is and where we are.
Sometimes we have to understand it in terms of the opportunity that God provides for us to have discourse with him so that we can understand why we're here and what he really requires of us. It's called prayer. But I want to put prayer within a context that I am calling, and which is called, intercession. Because intercession is more than praying. Intercession means standing in the gap. And when we are in the gap, it's an opportunity to pray. But it's also an opportunity to demonstrate to act. And to ensure that the gap between God, his will, his purpose in heaven, and the people on earth, in the nations in which we live, the families in which we are raised, the communities, in which we are socialized, that that gap is filled through us. So, we've said there is a strategy that is necessary that requires getting into the presence of God. I know we can pray from afar off, especially if we are in our sins. So we can pray like Jesus pointed out a man and said, see him there? Look, he's praying from afar off. All he can say is, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's a prayer. Long distance. But there's another prayer that comes and is described as a still, small voice. When you are in the closet or in the cave, And usually, in that setting, you are there not because of yourself, but because you're driven there by the condition of your own people and of your own nation. God does provide a cave. Sorry, a cleft in the rock. 
sorry. A place in Christ. Where we can become aware of him and where we can have discourse with him. Where he speaks loudly with a still, small or quiet voice. It's a place that I call the sound of silence. It's a place where silence is very loud and clear. It's a place to be. But we also said that the strategy is not only a place and of intimacy that we have to discover, but it's also a purpose that is not ours, but his. So the concern is not so much whether I have clothes to wear, food to eat, a shelter over me, but whether I am in touch with his rulership, his governance, his purpose. So we've got to seek first. And that word, I'm sure Mark will help us with it, doesn't really mean first in order. It means first and only. So you don't seek him and then seek, other, seek what you need to wear. You seek him and then he takes care of everything. You seek his rulership, you seek his authority, you seek his company, you seek him. He is our father. He knows everything that we need. And if he's our father, it means that he has begotten us. We may have forgotten it because we think of ourselves as sons of men until we found Christ. And uh, because we believe in him, we become sons, again, of God. <clears throat> but there's another dimension to the strategic uh, praying, and that is that we need to come into the office as intercessors. And I want to pick up from there because 
I got some questions yesterday. Uh, trying to understand the difference between an office and a ministry. Very important. A ministry is a function that we exercise in a moment of inspiration. It may be temporary because there is a need that faces us and a burden comes upon us, perhaps because we can identify with the need, but perhaps also and hopefully because the Spirit of God has chosen you in that moment to meet that need. So here is Solomon. We met him yesterday. Who is a young king and has just completed the building of God's temple. And he comes before Almighty God on a platform in the midst of his people. He's the king. But he takes up a posture because of the burden that he feels for his own people. Because he's conscious that in his office as king, he will have to deal with the problems and the difficulties of his people if there is famine, if there is poverty, if his people have strayed from God, and he takes up a priestly burden to pray for his people, and he spends the night praying for his people and offering sacrificially as if he's a priest. He is gripped in the moment with a priestly burden. And God hears him. And God answers him. But he's not a priest in office. but he is gripped with a ministerial burden in that moment. It's common. David also went into the temple and he, he did some stuff that only the priests in office should do. But he was gripped with a burden and, and the moment demanded that he did something. At any rate, we know that he was a psalmist. And so he was in touch with God and God's spirit. 
but he wasn't in the office of a priest. He was a king in terms of his office. In the New Testament, it is even more critical, and we live in New Testament times in that dispensation, and it is very clear that the Spirit of God dispenses in moments of anointing, we are inspired, and you may begin to prophesy. Not because you're a prophet, but because the spirit of prophecy comes upon you. Or you get special discernments, words of knowledge, or you reach out your, stretch out your hand to heal, because in the moment you are gripped with a passion. But you may not be in the office of a teacher, but you can share insights. You may not be in the office of an evangelist, but you still witness and win people. <clears throat> you see, an office is an official institutionalized position that you hold in which there are terms of reference and <clears throat> within that context hopefully you are inspired but there are times when you're not inspired but you still have to perform according to the terms and reference and you will make it and you may even be able to do mighty works, be powerfully effective, not because of the inspiration that has come to you, but because you are functioning in an office in which there is an authority over you. Just as you said, Pastor Tom, that we can lead in worship and not realize that the effectiveness of our leading in worship is not just because of who we are, but because we are operating in a context of a house that carries the anointing. That is what we call an office. And sometimes we know it as pastors and preachers. You know, you come and you preach and you really leave depressed and you wonder if you really did anything. I can see you agree with me, Mark. And, and the people say, wow, it's the greatest message. That thing has gotten to me. Because you're operating in an office. Now, I want to make that distinction, but, and I may refer to it as we keep going along, but I want us 
not to become too preoccupied with it. What I'm drawing us into here is the opportunity for us to graduate from merely men and women who happen to pray when we are called to pray or when we see a problem to assuming the office of an intercessor and taking it on as a responsibility. The nation needs it. Your family needs it. Your church needs it. And within that context, I have presented to you, and I'm presenting to you, four offices. Yesterday we spoke about the priestly intercessor. There are some of you who have come to grips with that and you can identify with that and, uh, and perhaps you were so encouraged yesterday that you may have spent extra time in pouring yourself out and bearing the iniquity of your nation, the iniquity of your church, the iniquity of your friends and family because you, it is your office. And there are persons who will pray all night and even when they are done praying in an all-night prayer meeting and they go home, they are still intercessors. Today, I want to look at the other three offices. And... Uh, the first one I want to deal with is a prophetic intercessor. The prophetic intercessor. I wonder what we are talking about when we talk about the prophetic intercessor. The prophetic intercessor is one who makes declarations with demonstrations. Doesn't only speak, but he acts. And it is based on the word of God. The word of God in two dimensions. One we may call the Logos Word of God, the eternal law principles of God. But also the Rhema of God, which is 
the personal word that addresses a particular situation, a particular person's condition, and the prophet is conscious of both the eternal word and person of God, as well as the specific word that is applied to you, but not to her. And the prophetic intercessor is conscious of both of these. I wonder if you are a prophetic intercessor. Do you know how you know? You know. Your consciousness is not so much of the hurts and the feelings of the people like the priest would have. But you are more in touch with the mind of God, the will of God. Men may not see the problems on the earth. Men may not understand the circumstances and situations that we are facing, but God does. And if the weights and balances are just marginally off so that the merchant can deceive you and you're not aware of it, but the prophet picks up the eyes of God that makes him see an inch and realize that in a moment it can become a mile. So a prophet is one who actually encounters God and has a knowledge of God which is not about God but is an experience of God. And so he gets into the very mind of God so that he can hear the word of God and so that he can embrace the will of God in order to accomplish the purpose of God which will rest restore, establish the rulership of God on earth just as it is in heaven. I'm talking about the prophetic consciousness of a person. And if you live there, it's likely that you are in the office of the prophet. Because in the office of the prophet, you're accountable to God. And you literally live with him.
prophet who lives with God and is conscious of the mind and understands the word of God, fulfilling his purpose and his will, is in constant contention with the mind set of the world. And he is conscious of the battle for the minds of men in the culture of a nation where the social practices, the laws, the constitutions, and everything that is happening in the world are militating against God and are destroying the people in the nation. And so he assumes a posture that makes him become an answer for God in the affairs of men by declaring the law word of God countering the ignorance and the foolish philosophies and vain philosophies of men. The scriptures help us to understand that. There are so many scriptures. I was wading through many of them last night. But, but in Romans chapter 1, it's a very good picture of how man who is born with an awareness of God but who is lost because there is a propensity in us from birth from conception even to wander away from God. And in Romans chapter 1, I'll just read a few verses there from verse 18. It says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man, men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them for since the creation of the world his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man 
and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. What a condition. Am I describing your environment? But it goes on. It gets worse. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, full of murder, full of strife, full of deceit, evil-minded. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, Inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Sorry, did I leave you out? <laughs> well, you too, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice those things are deserving of death. Not only do the same, but they also approve or cause others to practice them as well. That's the consciousness of a prophet who is in touch with the righteous mind of God. Describing his own people, he comes to warn men then against the distractions of the world, against the pleasures of the flesh, against the deceptions of the devil, which are actually designed to destroy him or them and their communities. But they come also to protect the victims of other men. Oppression, corruption in the systems and the laws and the conventions of men. He comes with a consciousness of the judgment of God and the the visitation of God. Times and seasons we were talking about. It's not the times and seasons of men, but the prophet becomes conscious of the times and seasons of God. And to speak into it. Ultimately, the prophet... seeks to restore men to God and to restore the society to the word and law of God. It's a battle. We're battling, you can think of it in your own country. We're battling against the media and the way the media thinks and the way the media dispense information and knowledge as if it is truth. Whether it's electronic media, the print media, in the world of the arts and entertainment, in, in, uh, in, in the social media, 
in traditions and in our culture, our beliefs, in everything, psychologically and socially, our minds are twisted. Here is the responsibility of the prophetic intercessor. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 6, Paul puts it like this. He says, you know, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Not us. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty in God. For the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready at all times to punish all disobedience when our obedience is fulfilled. I'm talking about the prophetic intercessor. That's the battle. So it's not just praying. It's a war to bring the minds, the philosophies, and the thoughts, and the imaginations of our people and our culture into subjection to the mind of God. You know, God said he was looking for a man who would stand in the gap. He says, if I, find, if I don't find one, I'm going to have to destroy this nation. So I can see the sign today in Zimbabwe, wanted men and women to stand in the gap. And it's a critical time, it's a critical moment, and I would dare to even say prophetically that we are on the crest of the judgment of God in this nation, and he will either judge us, obliterate us, or he will redeem us and save us as a people. I believe we shall be saved, because in here we have a company of prophets. I wish I had time to just give some examples. You know, Jesus, when Jesus came, this is a very good one. Jesus came and, and at the outset of his ministry, he took up the scroll and he said, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Now, this is a prophetic posture. It's very interesting. He says, I have come to preach good news to the poor and at the same time to bring healing to the brokenhearted. 
We need to couple those. It's not two different things. He comes to, to speak to those who are impoverished and brokenhearted, but not just to speak to them, but to bring healing to them. He says to proclaim liberty to the captives. But not just to proclaim liberty, but actually to open the prison doors and to set them free. I'm talking about prophetic intercession, standing in the gap. And then he says to declare the acceptable year of the Lord, but not only to declare it, but to ensure that the vengeance of our God is brought. And so he says, here is the result. To comfort all who mourn. To console those who mourn in Zion. To give them beauty for ashes. The oil of joy for mourning. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. So that they may become a new people called trees of righteousness. The planting of the Lord so that God may be glorified. That is the end of it. That's what the prophet is after, that God may be glorified. And we are the beneficiaries of that. You know, he understands the signs of the times. We have already talked about Jehoshaphat and, and the power of the prophetic in music in worship. In Psalm 149, I like this, verses 6 to 9, it says, the psalmist cries out in his prophetic burden and office, and he says, let the high praises of God be in their mouth, a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance on the nations and punishment of the people. I go on to Psalm 67 where it says, let the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. O let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you shall judge the people righteously and govern the nations on earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. Then the earth shall yield her inc their increase. We need to understand that, that prophetic praise and worship before Almighty God has the effect of bringing productivity to the land. I want to go on to... Can we elevate some persons today to the office of prophetic intercessor? What about governmental intercession? Governmental intercession is critically needed.
governmental intercessor is somebody who is conscious of the covenant that God has made with your nation and your people. Based on the law, word, or the constitution that God has designed for your governance. I'm talking now of somebody with a princely spirit, with a governmental sense of order, who understands that in every nation there are institutions, there are laws, there are traditions, there are homes, there are communities, there is culture. And if these are not protected, then they will, in fact, oppress the people. So we need governmental prayers and intercession within structured jurisdictional spheres. And we need to come against the power blocks that are evil in our nation. There's political corruption, there's financial cronyism, there's social oppression, there's domestic abrasiveness, abusiveness, there's media deception, there's military might, there's cultural pleasure, and you can add to it, but, but there are power blocks that actually exercise governmental disruption. And our responsibility is to pray for kings and governors and those who have authority and whose responsibility is to maintain the order and to create an environment for productivity, for peace, for security in a nation. That calls then for righteous men to be positioned in the nation. First, as intercessors. Now, I just want to say this. The scriptures said, you know some of the scriptures, when the righteous rule, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, the people groan. But you may not be in the place of rulership governmentally, but it is the prayer of the righteous that is effective. And I'm here to challenge you to say that what you need to do is to ensure that wherever you work, wherever you're placed and positioned, whatever vocation you are pursuing, whatever is your professional line, whether you are in government itself, whether you are in the schoolroom, whether you are in corporate business, whether you are in the entertainment world, whether you are in the judiciary, it doesn't matter. Wherever you are, you have a responsibility to stand in the gap and to ensure 
that rulership brings order and justice protects the community in which you're serving. So you should go to work every day standing in the gap while you're typing or while you're making notes or why whatever you're doing, if you're producing in the factory, if you're planting in the field, if you're in the boardroom making decisions, whatever you're doing, you must stand in the gap between God and your nation. So many examples. The early church. Let's just move on. I'm not going to have time to go into all of these. What I, what I am praying for in my own nation and in the nations that I visit is that heads of state, governmental men and women who sit in parliaments and in congresses, that they will come into a knowledge of God themselves and will not be afraid or ashamed to stand up publicly before their people and to ask God to bless their people, knowing that their own hand is short, but God's hand is not. Knowing that, uh, that God has appointed them in their office as authorities of God. And they should stand up and be able with humility, like David did, like Solomon did, like Nehemiah did, like Daniel did, like Elijah did, men and women of God who would stand up in the marketplace Stand up in the political arena. Stand up in the educational institutions. Stand up in the courts of justice and declare that justice belongs to God and that they are servants of the living God. And take up the office of intercessor, standing in the gap. And if not the office, at least when you go to work, and you see what is happening, you can allow the Spirit of God to use you in the ministry of a governmental intercessor. The last one I want to mention to you is the evangelistic burden to claim souls for the kingdom of God. I don't want to spend too much time on this one. <clears throat> the burden of the evangelist is the souls of men. And the evangelist cannot go out there without himself or herself praying for them. But here's what I've discovered. The effectiveness of the evangelist depends on the faithfulness of the intercessory prayers of the priests, of the prophets, and of the princes. 
And I'm putting that squarely in what Pastor Tom has been preaching. That when they go out and do battle, evangelists can come and gather up the spoils. Jesus says, when you go into a town, when you go into a home, wherever you go, he says you first have to bind up the strong man. If the strong man is in government, you bind him up. If the strong man is in the corporate world, you bind him up. If the strong man needs his mind to be transformed by the prophetic word of God, if sin has gripped them and the priest has borne the iniquity of the people, then the evangelist can and go forth with strength and reap in the harvest that is waiting for them. Jesus demonstrated that. In the powerful effectiveness of his ministry, he still saw that there were people who were faint and were falling away. And he went, he says, you know, chaps, the field is ripe unto harvest. We need to send workers, reapers. That's what an evangelist is. <clears throat> He's a reaper. I wonder if you are a reaper yourself. We got to battle for souls. <coughs> I like what Paul said. He says in Romans 9, one and three says to three, I tell the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. He says, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. God is calling us, my brothers and sisters, and sending us as he sent Adam, blessing us, blessing us, and saying become fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, Subdue it. Jesus put it in three statements. He says, when you go into all the world, I want you to disciple nations. He says, go into all the world and preach the good news. Evangelize the people. He says, I'm going to give you my spirit so that wherever you go, you can become witnesses of me, not just in Jerusalem, but in Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. I want to just say to you, God is just waiting on us to ask him. The psalmist put it this way, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Kings of the earth set themselves, rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us cast their cords from us. But he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. And then he says, 
he will set his son. Here's how he put it. He says, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. Ask of me. And I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. My brothers and sisters, it's simple. Intercession is, he says, ask of me. Just get your strategy right. Position yourself. Focus your purpose and come into the office either of a priest, a prophet, a prince, or an evangelist. I bless you today in the mighty, powerful name of Jesus that this nation might be given into our hands. All we have to do is ask of him. It is his to give. It is ours to ask. God bless you. Thanks for listening. For more teachings and videos, visit celebrationmen.org.